Hey there, Mama. Welcome back to another episode of the Working Mama podcast. This week, I speak with Alexandra Collier, who has a really interesting story as a working mum because she became a solo mother by choice. And we're going to hear all about her journey and her story and also about how she navigates this juggle. It's a really great chat that I have and I'm This week's episode is brought to you by the Working Mama Village, your community resources and your virtual hug to support you in navigating the juggle of motherhood and a career so you can thrive. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Working Mama podcast, a show that provides real world tips, tricks and advice to all working mamas on how they can have a career, family, and hopefully one day break the glass ceiling. Welcome, Alexandra, to the Working Mama podcast. How's your day going so far? Thank you for having me. Good. Crazy like every working mother. Yeah. <laughs> day is zipping from place to place, like pretending that time can somehow be like expanded <laughs> and slowed down. But it can't. Yeah. And as you said before, getting on here, you're like, oh, my son, you know, 4 a.m. in the morning. And I'm sure everyone can certainly relate to those interrupted sleeps. So my son often is coming into our room as well. And you're like, oh, my goodness, there's a little human right here. Yeah. My son sleeps, gets up every night in the middle of the night and comes and sleeps in my bed. And I've just, he's three and I've just kind of given into it. I'm like, this is what's going to happen. It's fine. Yeah. I know I'm doing the same thing with my five-year-old now. So he's only just started in about the last six months. But yeah, fun and games on the piggy in the middle. So for people, those that don't know you, Alexandra, how would you best describe yourself? I am a writer and a solo mum by choice. So I have a three-year-old donor-conceived son and I wrote a memoir recently called Inconceivable, which is about my path to solo parenthood. So I was a playwright and I'm also a screenwriter, but I'm now an author as well. Oh, congratulations. And we'll get more into the book and your whole journey around solo parenting shortly. But do you want to just also give what has been your career journey to date? So obviously you've also lived overseas and yeah, so it's probably, I know, where do we start? But yeah, love to hear your version of events. It's a good question. It's a very long sort of winding road. I think being an artist of any kind or being a writer, there's not sort of a linear sort of upward climbing up the mountain trajectory. It's sort of circular. You go around and around and around and there's a lot of projection on the way. I moved to New York in my late 20s because I was a playwright and that was where playwrights, serious playwrights were and I wanted to be a serious playwright. And I, so I worked there, I ended up staying there for a decade. And at the same time, of course, I had to support myself with other work. So I do copywriting as well, which I think is often a dirty little secret with people who are artists that they pretend that they don't have another job. But really, most people who are working in any artistic career have to have another job to support them. And I, you know, I worked there and sort of gradually climbed my way up to having productions off Broadway and you know, going on amazing fellowships and residencies and it's such an incredible place for opportunities in the theatre. And I was dating an American guy for about four years. I woke up to this sudden longing to have a baby and unfortunately my lovely ex, now ex-boyfriend, did not share that desire. 
and I was, you know, heading towards my late thirties as the relationship progressed. So I ended up leaving that relationship and coming back to Melbourne where my family is and found myself, you know, single and broke and living with my parents essentially. And that was the sort of inciting incident for what has become my book. And I boarded the online roller coaster of, you know, dating whilst also pursuing this idea of whether I could become a solo parent as well via donor sperm. You know, at the same time, I was working as a copywriter, writing screenplays, and it's it's strange. It's interesting. My career and my art, I guess, are very entwined. So a few years, you know, about a year after having my son, I decided to write an article about it because people would sort of lean in when I mentioned that I'd conceived him via donor sperm. And you could see their curiosity and their interest and their sort of desire to know more. And I thought this is a story that no one has really told in Australia and that people are really curious about and really interested in. And I'd, you know, been writing about it in my journal and sort of documenting it. And I thought I'm going to pitch an article to, it was the Good Weekend, the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And that led to a book deal. So then I wrote a memoir of the last few years, which was a great project to have during lockdowns. And also worked at the same time. So I sort of did the book part-time and now it's recently been published. So I had a lot of conflict, I think, about writing a memoir about becoming a parent, about my desire to be a parent whilst having to leave my child in care to do that. <laughs> it seemed ironic that I was writing about this journey to becoming a mother, you know, while having to have help to be able to you know, write about that thing that I'd wanted so much. But I think I've come to a kind of peace with that, which is that if women don't write about their motherhood journey or don't talk about it or don't express it, it's this huge silent part of our lives, you know, that is not being acknowledged and is not being respected and seen and it needs to be seen. So I feel like I've come out the other side of that sort of guilt that I had about writing a book that included him and was about that journey. But it's also about, it's interesting that we're made to feel like as much as we want kids, like we've got to spend 24-7 with them, but also as, you know, they're one piece of also who we are. They're not completely our identity as well. So, right. yeah, like I had I had my own struggles of falling pregnant with my first child, so it took us 15 months and and during that time I'm seeing friend after friend announce their their pregnancy and I'm thinking what is it like and it's that desire of you know of wanting a child and I guess it's one of those things probably you know not until you don't have something do you realize how much you then wanted in your life but then it's also like okay yep I've got a child but there's also still me in it but it's interesting like the systems the patriarchy that we have of like oh no you you know you should be made to feel guilty about this but you're like no I still want to be able to like for you still write and still follow your your artistic ambitions in that. So it's it's always that double-edged sword, I find. Yeah, that's interesting. I think also ambition and the desire to be a mother, which is sometimes feels like being possessed or it did to me, are kind of similar things in a way for women because anything that we want with ferocity is sort of taboo like mm. we're not really supposed to express our desires I mean we're supposed to want children that's 
expected of us and not everyone does and I kind of envy the people who don't have any yes <laughs> any desire for that not that I regret my child but I think oh how great would it be to be free of that burden but yeah so it was interesting for me when I woke up to that sudden longing to have a baby because it wasn't part of my ambitious path you know I'd moved to New York I I boarded the kind of treadmill in New York, which is that you have to be ambitious and driven there. Otherwise you just get washed away. And I'd been so dogged in pursuing this career as a playwright. And it really felt counterintuitive to become a mother. I thought there's no way this is going to work in the theatre. I'd even said to other people, it's so ironic now, who were thinking about having babies and did have babies. Oh, I don't know if that's a good idea for your theatre career, you know. And now I just... Oh, I feel so embarrassed that I said that to them because I think, you know, we're well aware that it's impossible to have everything and that in the arts especially, you know, women are kind of penalised, you know, in every career women are penalised for having children. So it, it was a real spanner in the works but it felt like my my ambition also was an ambition to be a mother in a weird way, you know, that, that, that those desires are, that they're both forms of desire that women have or can have, you know. Yeah, but so it's so true. Of, it's so true, as you say, that, yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't often, and, you know, we're also not sometimes led to believe that we can be ambitious and, and follow that. But, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Exactly, it's a taboo word, you know, ambitious. She was, a, she's a very ambitious person. She's very ambitious. You know, you hear people sort of say that in this kind of like ooh, whispery sort of uh, gossipy tone and I think, well, good for, good the fuck for her. Like, yeah. Be ambitious, like go after what you want. Like we all want these things and, you know, to walk around hiding them and feeling embarrassed and ashamed about it, you know, you can still be a gracious, kind, good person and be ambitious, you know. It doesn't mean you're cutthroat and nasty. It just means that you're pursuing what you want. And it's and so different that, what, that if you, yeah, if you tell a male that they're ambitious, it's like, yeah, rah, rah, go you. But then if you tell a female she's ambitious, it's like, oh, gee. It's the the connotations yeah. are so different between male and female. So different. Mm. And so yeah. what was the journey like for you in becoming a solo mum? I know that like I was reading um, some articles preparing for this and, and there were extracts of your book of saying, not really everyone understood, even some of your family, of why are you going to do this? And you know, and I have to say from the outset, kudos to you because parenting is a hard gig and even with like two parents. So I have to say massive kudos to you as a solo parent. You deserve all the, everything in the world. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for me in becoming a solo parent was the decision in a way. It was the decision to do it. So I kept wrestling with this idea that I would, Surely I would meet someone. You know, we've all got this romantic narrative that we've been fed since we were small children. Surely that that would come to fruition. And everyone kept saying to me, don't worry, you'll meet someone, you'll meet someone. And so I thought, of course I'll meet someone. Everyone thinks I will. I've always dated people. I've had long-term monogamous relationships. I'm going to meet someone. That's just inevitably going to fall into place. And when that didn't happen, well, I mean, it wasn't that I didn't meet people. It was that my dating life sort of had this pressure hovering over it which is that my reproductive timeline was running out you know I was heading towards 40 and I knew that I didn't have years and years to figure out love but and so ultimately I decided that it was more important to have a baby and that love could come along at any point 
But I did face opposition and obstacles within my own family, mainly from my mum, who is the antagonist or the villain in my book, which she's well aware of (laughs) and has, you know, graciously accepted. And I think that was also an added obstacle to the path because my parents had this idea, which I think a lot of people still hold, which is that children should have a mother and a father. You know, it's this very conservative outlook and that children should have at least two parents, even if it's not a mother and a father, and that somehow you're robbing them of something if you don't provide them with that. And my mum said to me, you know, women who do that are selfish and they're only thinking about themselves and not the child. And I've thought about that a lot in subsequent years because I think that idea of selfishness is interesting because it is selfish to want a child, you know, whether you're in a relationship or not, you know, there's not a kind of altruism behind deciding to procreate, you know, it's not like for the good of the world, you know, you do hopefully want to love your child and, but it's this, you know, it's this kind of primal thing that humans have. And a lot of people, of course, start off in relationships and want children. And then those relationships don't always work out. So it's interesting to me that single women who go about this so deliberately and conscientiously, who go to IVF clinics, who, you know, think very carefully about who their sperm donor is going to be, who save money, who go through rounds and rounds of IVF because they really want and love a child are the ones being critiqued mm-hmm. and the ones being selfish when, you know, there's um, a lot of partnerships that don't work out and no one's saying to people who are divorced or separated, well, that was very selfish of you to have a yeah. child many years ago. And I don't think, you know, I'm not saying it's selfish of those people either. I just think that we've got this very sort of heteronormative, staid, nuclear version of what a family should be. And so that was difficult for me to overcome because, of course, when you're making a family, the people you want to look to for support are your own family. And if they're in opposition to what you want to do, that is very difficult to overcome. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of our lives wrestling with our parents' beliefs or oppositions or becoming the people we want to be despite what they might think you know some more than others some people have incredibly progressive and supportive families but there was a kind of coming out process that was involved to borrow queer terminology in telling my parents that I was going to do this and what was how have you overcome that and worked through it so and how are they now with it well you have to read my memoir, Inconceivable, yes. <laughs> <laughs> to find out which way it went. But I think what I will say is part of why I wrote this book was to destigmatize this path to parenthood because I knew that a lot of women I was meeting were also facing the same kind of opposition, whether it was from their own parents or their friends or the people around them, and to show that this is not a second best option to have a child this way. So, you know, I really hope that the book helps people go after what they want, not just, you know, having a baby necessarily, but I think the book in a way was me coming to terms with this idea of as an adult, we so often end up living this life that we never conceived of, whether that means we're child-free or we're divorced or we're a single parent or we're living overseas. And I I think that we all have this romantic fantasy narrative of how our lives are going to unfold and how we're going to arrive at adulthood. And we rarely arrive there. And so I hope that Inconceivable lets people sort of take hold of their future without waiting for someone's permission or, you know, approval or sperm or whatever it is. So, and I will say to your question that 
it's very different in the abstract telling people that you're going to have a baby on your own to actually having a human child in the world. People love a baby. Most people love a baby. And my parents, of course, adore my son. And so things have have shifted a lot and they are very grateful that he's in the world. So it's an ultimately, I hope this book is an ultimately uplifting and positive book with with a kind of happy ending. It's a different kind of love story in a way. Yeah. And what's been your experience as a solo mum? So what are some of those things that maybe have you've challenged have been challenges for you, but also on the flip side that you've that have really surprised you or really you just absolutely adore as well? Mm. I mean, I think there are so many challenges as a parent, which I shared across the board between single parents and partner parents. It's I think it's not that different other than the fact that I'm the sole resource most of the time. Like I can't turn around and say to someone else, well, what do you think we should do? You know, yeah. there's no other adult in the room. So I'm the decision maker a lot of the time. Having said that, my parents are very supportive and helpful and they are, my mum's a GP, which is incredibly helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so the like timing going, can you tell me, like, is this rash on my son's chest, normal kind of thing, which, you know, I wish everyone could be gifted a GP, like, on call. I think as a parent that's what you need all the time. I think, yeah, so it's the sole decision-making, I think, that can sometimes be tricky. It's That's also a benefit too because I know a lot of people who fight and have different ideas about how they want to parent. So I guess I'm free of that in a way. But sometimes, you know, you're right at the end of your resources. You know, it's the middle of the night. It's whatever, 2 a.m. And there's a fever or there's, you know, someone vomiting in your bed, not you, your child. And and it's like you're the only one there. And I think what has been amazing to me is that you have, even at the end, end of your rope, the very frayed, frayed, desperate end of your rope, you have more in you than you thought you did and so I think that is the gift of parenting in a way is that it takes you outside of yourself you know it focuses you you on someone else and it shows you kind of your ability to keep going and your sort of reserves of resilience and energy and the flip side of that is that it's also very exhausting (laughs) and I think the challenge for me has been in asking for help. You know, I think we live in in a society where it's sort of become, we live in, I live in a city and we live these more atomized lives where you're not really supposed to be a burden to other people. You know, if you, you want help, you're kind of supposed to pay for it or outsource it in some way. And I think the challenge is in asking other people, sometimes saying, you know what, like, and so what I do now is, Someone said to me once, you know, what you've got to be okay with is with people saying no. So, and sort of let that go lightly. Like that Mm. that if another parent, if you ask another parent and they say, sorry, can't do it, go, okay, no worries, on to the next, you know, sort of, and that there's a kind of lightness to it, that it's not a rejection of you as a person if someone can't help you out. So often if I need help, if there's sort of, you know, an afternoon I need an hour's help of babysitting or something and I'm trying to ask friends, I'll text three different people because I think, well, one of them might be able to do it, you know, and then just not take it personally to just sort of take it, like they just let it wash off you that that person, this person and this person can't help. Sometimes you ask, you know, four or five people and none of them can help. And you're like, okay, well, that's it. I tried, you know, and 
I've also got babysitters, of course, that I have to call on and my parents are great. And my brother is great. So, but I think that asking for help thing is a real, it's a really thorny thing. And it might even be a particularly Australian thing because we have this sort of stoicism, like I can do it on my own. No worries. Like, you know, you don't, you don't show need, you don't show vulnerability in, in our society. So that is something I don't think I've solved, but I'm working on. I'm, I'm definitely working on it, even though it sort of feels icky and entitled. Oh, you're like, oh God, are these people thinking I'm using them because I'm texting them to look after my son, you know, but a lot of the time, you know, people just say no if they're busy and people will say yes if they're happy to do it. And a lot of people enjoy helping you, you know, Mm -hmm. and they enjoy spending time with your son. So it's, it's not as big as an imposition as you think. Yeah. And I reckon it's one of the biggest things I've personally as well experienced is I think at the start, particularly with my first son, I was like, no, I can do it all. I don't need to ask for help. And and there's like this element of like being proud of, yep, I know I can do it. Mm. But a good friend of mine, it was actually when we first met at that mother's group in that big circle, she said, she made this comment about if you say no, then people aren't going to offer again and you've kind of shut Mm. that door. But if you say yes and keep that door ajar or just say, look, not right now, but maybe next time, it actually then invites people to in to actually want to help you. And it was really interesting because then after that comment, I reflected and I was like, oh, yeah, I have said no. And then that means that I've probably turned people mm. away. But then the more I realized, I'm like, oh, yes, you can help me. And then particularly when my second child came along, even though we had it during COVID, I was like, yes, I'll have all the food that you want. I'll have any extra clothes. I was like, I'm going to say yes to everything. And it was interesting. The, the experience was also different and people are wanting to help. And I think there's this innate nature People want to help, but then also that, as you said, that pride element of the Australian procul, I know I can do it, I'll be fine. And yep, you'll be right, mate. And it's but the community in the village is is certainly real. And I think what you said about people offering is so true. That what people are offering you is a gift. Mm. And if you say no to the gift, you're essentially rejecting a gift. You know, and if someone hands you a present, you don't hand it back. You know, yeah. um, that's that's kind of seen as a rebuke or a form of rejection. So, I mean, I used to work for Esther Perel, which I also write about in the book, and she would say that, you know, if someone says, gives you a compliment, like, oh, I really like your glasses, you know, instead of saying, oh, these, like I just, you know, I bought them secondhand, whatever, you know, you say thank you. You know, that's a gift. Someone is giving you a compliment. And it's the same with offers of help, and I do it too. You know, someone said to me the other day, oh, do you want me to help you get in the car because I had my son and all this stuff? And I was like, no, 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 I'll be fine. And then afterwards I thought, why didn't I just accept that offer of help? You know, it was there, they they wanted to help and it would have made my life easier. But I also think it comes back to this idea that as a mother, particularly now, the contemporary idea of motherhood is sort of being able to juggle everything and do everything and present this very perfect front to the world. <laughs> Which and is so- far from the truth. Far from the truth and is why we sometimes refuse help because we're supposed to have it all under control. So, yeah, it's just that I think that would be my tip to other people and myself to, like, accept help. I mean, there's that great book by Amanda Palmer. What's it called? The, anyway, the musician Amanda Palmer writes about, it's like the art of giving or something. Someone else will know. But, and she talks about, you know, when someone would come to her gig and offer the donuts, she's like, just take the donuts. You know, don't say no. Like, yes, someone is going to come over and give you the donuts. Take the donuts. And I always think to myself, take the donuts. You know? Yes. It's a good metaphor to have. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, as a solo mum, what are some of the hints and tips and strategies you do to be able to navigate, you know, having your career of being a writer as well as having your son? I just remember the name of that book. It's called The Art of Asking. Sorry. Yep. No, wants to read it. She's an amazing, she writes an amazing story about asking for help. Um, what is, sorry, can, can you repeat the question again? So, you know, as a solo mum, what are some of your hints and tips and strategies to navigating that juggle? So obviously taking the donut is one of them, but what are some <laughs> other elements that you find that, you know, if all solo or single mums that are um, listening, what what advice and tips do you have I think you do need to find a community of other people who have shared experience whether you're a solo parent or a single parent or you know it helps to be surrounded by people who are doing the same thing as you and to see them surviving and thriving and also those people are often the people who can help you or give you advice or you can text them or call them you know weird hours and on my way to becoming a solo parent I met a whole community of solo mums through this support group that used to exist in Victoria. And there's also an online Facebook group, which is huge and hugely supportive, the Australia Solo Mums, Solo Mum, ASMBC, Australia Solo Mum by Choice on Facebook. And they have branches for each state as well. And in meeting those other women, I was able to see that they were living their lives successfully with children. And there is that cliche of like, like you have to see it to be it, but I really think it's true. But in witnessing that, that let me sort of take hold of this life and move forward and pursue this path. And it was really liberating to see these people with their kids who were just going about their existence. You know, of course, it can be a struggle. It can be challenging. I think part of, I have a toddler right now. And as you know, the toddler phase is particularly yeah. challenging. I think that what, I'm trying to do is to do less. So, you know, a friend was like, oh, we only bath our kids every second day. And I was like, oh my God, great parenting hack. I'm going to start doing that, you know? So unless he's covered in mud, I'm like, you know, we'll just have a bath tomorrow. It's not, it's sort of like trying to take things away rather than add things in. Like your child doesn't necessarily need to be going to swimming lessons and tennis lessons and mini maestros and everything when they're three. You know, it's like you don't need 700 activities to for your child to be happy. Like all your child really wants is for you to be present with them. That's what they like. That's what they want the most. So I think sort of winnowing away a lot of that stuff that is kind of weighing on us as parents, a sort of anxious parenting model of like do more, do more, do more. So if that means like, cooking spaghetti with tomato sauce and it just cook spaghetti with tomato sauce yeah. <laughs> you know? like that's what my son wants to eat it's like you know I think just sometimes the path of least resistance is not as terrible as you think you know you're not failing because you didn't make them like seven vegetables with their meal or whatever and I think the best advice I got in the early years of parenting was another solo mum said to me that the maternal child health nurse had said to her, when your child is asleep, do something for yourself. So don't just do the laundry, sweep the floor, you know, make the beds or whatever, like have a cup of tea or do some time, even if it's a tiny, teeny thing, like try and do something for yourself so that your free time is not just domestic chore time. I know that's easier said than done, but it's sort of like sometimes I think the people who are the happiest are the people who like, 
do the least cleaning and do the least the less less stuff like you know I was at someone's house yesterday and I was like oh this bathroom is really disgusting and I was like you know what they're probably really happy yeah (laughs) (laughs) I don't give a shit about the bathroom it's sort of like you know letting go of that and I'm not saying I've mastered that like I am unfortunately one of those kind of workaholic people who's like you know taking the laundry upstairs while also doing like seven other things at the same time but I try I'm trying to like carve out little teeny tiny moments of like oh this thing is just something that I'm doing for myself even if it's like eating chocolate secretly behind a cupboard door or something yeah (laughs) so yeah because your child will be happier if you're happier you know if you're more relaxed and I read this great book which I recommend um called small animals by Kim Brooks it's an American book and she writes about sort of the anxiety around parenting that we currently live with and what what kind of drove her to write the book was that she left her son in the car for a few minutes while she ran into a shopping center because she was on the way to the airport and someone took a photo and she got arrested and this was in the states and she that sort of led her down this whole rabbit warren because she spent years sort of in and out of the court system. She didn't go to jail, but she talks about how frequently that happens and how motherhood is kind of policed. Her child was safe. It wasn't hot outside. It was, you know, cold. He was fine. It was like three minutes, you know. But she talks about all the ways in which parenting has become incredibly arduous and highly strung and sort of helicopter-ish because of the expectations placed upon us, especially mothers. And I found that book incredibly liberating. Oh, that, I think I need I to read that book. I'm a book club now. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. I think everyone's done it. I remember one time I left my son in the car. I should have done it multiple times, you know, filling up with petrol. And someone said to me, you yeah. know, it's illegal to do that. And I'm like, what are you supposed to do? I'm like, because- like, I've got cars going all different directions. I'm like, it's actually safer for my kids to stay in exactly. the car. So yeah, hopefully yeah. no police is lifting right now, but yeah. So, I, yeah, exactly. I think exactly what you're doing is all the time you're weighing the sort of cost benefit analysis. It's like, it's actually safer for me to leave my kid in the car because it's not going to run across three lanes of, you know, cars coming and going. And he's not going to have a screen fit when we go into the petrol station because he wants a lollipop. And I don't want him to have a lollipop because he just had an ice cream or whatever, you know? So it's like, and all I have to do is run in and pay quickly. And, you know, there's all these things that you're weighing up that are better for your child and better for you. And that don't always make sense, you know, legally or, you know, in terms of what society approves of, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's mad. It's maddening, but I do it too. I, I run in because if, if I brought my son into the petrol station every time, the amount of treats I would have oh. to like fights about would, it's just not worth it, you know? And, and I don't want, and also just getting him in and out of the car as a three-year-old. Oh, it's a hassle. He jumps in the front seat. He wants to drive. He like turns everything on. He's just like getting him in the car is a whole 15 minute ordeal you know yeah it's, it's, the, it's the risk benefit analysis and you're like right I'm gonna weigh this up and and just see really what works and that yeah. yeah it's definitely there and what has surprised you most in your parent like or like the positive elements of it that were you like yes this is exactly what I was hoping or and also where do you see it going for you like of you know in the future I think there's no way to know before you have a child until you've experienced it 
what that tsunami of love is going to feel like, you know, I think that is what is constantly surprising and delightful about being a mother, you know, as tedious as motherhood can be, as filled with domestic tasks, as, you know, much as like it can feel like you're some kind of slave to some small person or that you're being run under this sort of weird dictatorship by a tiny person. There's like endless joy in the love you feel for them and in their discovery of the world. Mm. It's such a cliche, but really is true. Like it's delightful to be with my three-year-old when he's having a little monologue about something and he's discovered something, you know. So I think that is something that like is endlessly being given to you. Yeah, I'd say that in a way is, I don't know if it's a surprise. I expected to feel love for my child, but I didn't know how much, you know, Mm. I didn't. And it was that thing of I really, really, really wanted to have a child. I wanted a child so much that I left a great relationship to pursue the possibility of having a child with someone else. And then I wanted a child so much that I went and to a, you know, an IVF clinic and use a sperm donor to do it. And I was a bit worried, I think, that sometimes when you get what you want, you know, of course it comes with a whole new set of problems, but it, I was worried that it wouldn't be satisfying or something, but it, it has been more than satisfying. You know, it's been insanely satisfying. And I think on the other side of this journey, having not waited for a man's approval or permission to do this, I felt so liberated and so empowered in choosing this for myself and so much happier as a person now that I've had a child, you know, and so much sort of, yeah, more fulfilled, I guess. I mean, I'm not saying I I don't still have problems or days where I feel lonely or frustrated or annoyed or whatever, but I think it's, it's lifted this huge weight off me, which was that I, I desired and wanted this thing so badly. And now I have this thing that I wanted, you know, and that has been incredible. It sounds like you've been through not only like a physical journey of getting pregnant and all that, but also quite a journey of self-discovery in your own identity and also about who you are, what you stand for, what's important to you, which I have to say is so inspirational because I think, as you said at the start, we don't go after all the time what we want or we don't actually, we might have this internal thought, I'd love to do this one day, but never act on it. And I have mm. to say, it's really inspiring to speak to you and that you're like, right, I wanted this. So I've gone out, I've done it, I've got it, and I'm absolutely nailing it. And it's, you know, kudos to you for doing it and following and following that dream. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's, I do, I do think that, there's so much frustration that I felt in that relationship with someone who wasn't ready to have kids yet. And so to be liberated from that, from, you know, having to wait for a man to get on board was just such a huge relief. And, you know, I don't say that so that people just jump into solo parenthood lightly. I think it should be thought about very carefully. Like, do you have a community to support you around you? Do you have family nearby? If you don't have family, can you find, do you have chosen family who you know will support you? Can you save money in advance? You know, it is hugely financially prohibitive, of course. To I, I did, I was inseminated, but, you know, a lot of people do rounds upon rounds of IVF. So there's all these things that it's important to think about and to try and put into place. Having said that, who's ever ready to have a baby, who's ever fully equipped, no one. So I think 
I, I'm not just saying, hey, like, go girl, like, we should all just run out and become solo moms, you know. But I do think that for me personally, it was just a huge relief not to have to be tied to this idea of a man, you know, providing this thing for me or a, agreeing to do it, you know, because I was so hamstrung for so many years by that. And it's just great to be on the other side of it. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, what do you do, Ali, for yourself and and for self-care to fill your cup? (laughs) That's a great question. I think I try and prioritise exercise. So like yoga, going for a run, which, you know, can also sound like punishment because sometimes it does feel like punishment going for a run. But, (laughs) no, it's, I think... Sometimes I think to myself, oh, I feel, you know, like I can't drop my child off at kindergarten and then go to a yoga class before I go to work. And I think if I don't go to the yoga class or I don't have the run, then, you know, like it has a sort of flaw on effect mm. where you feel like crappy for the rest of the day, you don't sleep well. So I think exercise is key. It's one of the hardest things I think to fit, fit in as a single parent. I had this system for a while where I would like my son would scoot to kinder and I would like jog along beside him. I was like, anytime I can like fit in some kind of exercise is really important for me and my mental health. You know, there's like a lot of luxuries that I would love to have on an ongoing basis, but of course they only happen quite rarely. Like occasionally, like once every six months, maybe I'll get a massage or something, you know, or like, a manicure or you know something like that so I don't know I don't know if I have an answer to that I just think I think it's just trying to prioritize something small for yourself you know in a day or in a week or and it's also social time so setting aside some time that you get to go out with friends is really crucial me as well so whether my, my brother is great he often babysits for me you know or sometimes I'll pay a babysitter like it's so 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 cost prohibitive to go yeah. out and pay a babysitter so obviously you know especially if you're paying for a meal and whatever else so it always feels sort of slightly insane to pay a babysitter but if you can have someone who will that's the other thing is a lot of the offers that people give you are like oh you know I'll come around and babysit for you one night because they're just going to sit and watch Netflix anyway yeah <laughs> like they may as well do it in your living room and I need to get better at taking those offers because people have said that to me and I'm like yeah 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 and then I think oh you know sure like maybe do they really mean it but the thing is it's like not that hard for someone to come and just watch tv especially if your kid is already in bed you know my kid's in bed by seven so yeah trying to carve out social time I think is really important too very good now is there anything else you want to just say or any tips hints advice about your journey and also solo parenting Mm. good question there's so much. <laughs> I think we covered a lot, actually. But I think the main thing I would say, if people are considering this path, if they're thinking, oh, this sounds interesting to me, first of all, I would buy a copy of Inconceivable <laughs> by Alexandra Collier, available at all good bookstores. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, secondly, I would say I think finding that community of people who are already doing it is key. You know, explore that. See you can have conversations with other people who are taking this path to see if you want to do it yourself, you know? And I also think because this podcast is about working mums that just to come back to that idea of ambition, 
just because you want to be a parent doesn't mean your ambitions suddenly die, you know. It's okay. They might sort of sort of lower down to a simmer for a while while you're pregnant and giving birth and dealing in, with the aftermath. But for me, I found that they're still there and they're still just as strong as they were before. I was quite surprised by that. They sort of just like came back to life mm. eventually. And I think, you know, that it's important to acknowledge that, for women to acknowledge that, to say, yeah, I've, I still have these ambitions. And it becomes very clear what it is that you want to spend your time on after you've had a kid. Like that's one of the gifts of parenting is of becoming a parent is that your free time is so precious that you want to be spending it doing the things that you really love doing. And for me, you know, writing this book, when I had the time to do it was I was the most productive and driven I've ever been with any writing project since, you know, before I had a kid. When I Before I had a kid, I had endless time, you know, to like lie around in my studio and write. And this was like, no, I have like two days a week. Yeah. I have like limited daycare hours. I am, I am going in there and I'm working on it and I am like driven by the fear of a deadline and that was actually a huge gift that I had limited time to create it, you know, and to do it. And that my son, I think, gave me that in a way. He sort of like gave me this appreciation of time. So I think that's a real gift for artists and for parents, you know, and, and for all of us as we consider what we're doing with all of our lives, even if we're not artists. Like I often think in my other world and my sort of more corporate kind of jobs I think oh do I really want to be doing this you know I'm constantly wrestling with like is this where I want to be spending my time you know so that's a tricky thing because we all need to make money and survive and especially single parents you know yeah we we don't often have a lot of choices around that Mm, yeah look I think that's an amazing way to to finish up for today because you know actually about the ambition that it's still okay and also giving women to have that uh, you know giving that permission slip to to follow their ambitions as well and that even though you just but you know once you become a mother you can still follow that so I think that's an amazing way to finish off today so Alexandra how can people find out about you as you said the book's available at all good bookstores but if people even have got questions how do they reach out and connect with you yeah sure I'm at Alexandra Collier writes on Instagram so you can get in touch with me that way and I love hearing from people and I love hearing from readers and I've got a website, alexandracollier.com. And yeah, you can get my book on audio or Kindle or online or at Big W or at your local bookstore. Sensational. <laughs> well, thank you so much for today. It's, I, as I said, I, I actually first read your article in The Age a few months ago and hearing your journey. And and I have to say, it's it's really inspiring and it's also really interwined as well with about ambitions and dreams and and going after that, which, you know, I think, as you said, and we've touched on a few times, we don't probably listen to that inner voice enough and actually follow our hopes and dreams. And and it's amazing and inspiring to see you do that and also still kick all the goals and and it's amazing. So best wishes going forward. I can't wait to continue to follow you on Instagram and, and see where your joint journey goes. Yeah. Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to the Working Mama podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast catch up. 
Please also feel free to contact me on any of the Working Mama social channels. Remember, Mama is M-U-M-M-A or website www.workingmama.com.au. I would appreciate you to share this podcast with friends and colleagues, especially those that are parents managing the juggle. And I would really appreciate if you had to take the time out to leave a review of the podcast. Thank you and see you next time. Have a great week. Thank you.